0: This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Hello welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast brought to you by Fly Racing and Renthal Street. On today's podcast, we're looking back at the World Superbike Ground at Donington Park. Steve English, Gordon Ritchie, Charlie Hiscott on the pod today and Gordo, it's uh, certainly was a little bit different at Donington at the weekend. We had absolutely scorching temperatures, big crowds, and a great atmosphere. It was a special round, I think, for everyone.
1: It was indeed, um, and I think it was uh, particularly good because the crowd it got off on it so much. It's been again, a kind of difficult few years for Superbike in some ways in the UK, and uh, after lockdown, everything else, everybody was desperate to go pre-sales were good and the event itself didn't disappoint the racing wasn't quite as good as maybe Estoril, but but you know that was like all time great spectacle to see but it was it was certainly entertaining the crowd loved it big crowd sunshine what more do you want?
0: Yeah racing wasn't too bad Charlie we had obviously Top Rack won all three races but we had Bautista with his first crash we had Ray trying to just bring it to Top Rack as much as he could and quite a few other storylines BMW back in the podium Alex Lowe's first podium of the season so there was a lot to pick through from this this weekend
2: brilliant event wasn't it i thought it was fantastic having all the fans back obviously the weather was great but um it was kind of like the the perfect thing that could have happened if you want the championship to carry on it was good to see that um jonathan made a load of points up on alvaro top rack got a load of points got his first triple win which he's been trying to do for a couple of years now so um i think in all respects it was fantastic like gordo said the racing might not have been quite as good as Estoril, but there were still some good battles going on and um, championship-wise, you know, we're, it was—I thought it was a really crucial round going into it—and um, I think it turned out very nicely. Well, Gordo, let's get
0: straight into it. What's your big talking point from the weekend? Is it Bautista's crash, Toprak winning those races again, Johnny having his contract resigned?
1: Uh, I think the, the single biggest thing was the fact that the championship came alive again. We were in some degree of danger of Bautista just telescoping away, Johnny being able to chase, and Toprak already having. A lot of bad luck. Um, well that all got inverted to in the weekend. There's still a big gap to Top Rack to to Batista, but the championship is almost reset. It's almost reset now. Um and that to me was the single biggest thing. But there were plenty of things happening on the weekend or after, um, that that could have been seen as somebody's individual highlight. But to me, this is the weekend the championship got going again.
2: Yeah, just to um I mean I, I thought it was you know, great for the championship and stuff. But I think there was a slightly, there was some ominous stuff there as well, which was that obviously Bautista falling off on the Saturday, everybody was concerned about how that, you know, we, we, everybody was looking back to 2019 and how is he going to react to it? And actually came back fighting and had, you know, he actually had three good races until he crashed in that first race. He was he was flying. And that's slightly ominous for me because that was one track where we thought that Ducati might be on the back foot. And if Alvaro's on the back foot, he has a crash, he still manages seconds and thirds and podiums. That's a slightly worrying sign for me. Most is going to be really interesting um, to see how things go there. You'd expect that. I mean, looking through the results, you kind of expected to see top and Jonathan. But Bautista now, I think he kind of proves that at Donington, that he can ride anywhere. They, they don't have bogey circuits anymore, really. And that's slightly ominous for me.
0: Yeah, and obviously enough 17 points now is the gap in the championship. And Charlie, whenever you were talking to Alvaro at the weekend, what was his overall mood, especially after the crash? Because you would have talked to him after the Super Bowl race, after the second race of the day as well, and uh, maybe even on the grid.
2: Alvaro's always the same. He's always really a ebullient, really friendly and warm. And actually, um, you know, he must have been questioning himself on Saturday night when he woke up Sunday morning thinking, oh my God, what's going to happen here? What's going to happen here today? And um, he rode fantastically. And I find, because I'm such a Jonathan and Top Rack fan, um, I find myself not probably not giving Alvaro the credit that he gets for, for being such a good rider and being strong mentally. And I think he proved that about this weekend. When I talk to him, he's always the same. He's lovely. He's always got a big smile on his face. He doesn't look like he's got any pressure on him at the moment. I think he's loving. I think compared to 2019, where he was on the ragged edge, to, to win those races, I find now that he looks to me now like he's riding. He's a bit like Jonathan was in, you know, when he was dominating everything and that he's just got a little bit in hand. His advantage of being able to overtake is a better advantage to have than being good on the brakes or being good in the corners for me. And that means that his races are, are a bit easier to deal with. The other guys are having to, you know, they really are having to fight tooth and nail just to stay with Over. And I think he's loving every minute of it at the moment. Well, I think that kind of leads in
0: nicely to one of the big talking points within the paddock at the weekend, Gordo, because Scott Redding came out and said that Alvaro was nowhere near as good as Toprack and Jonathan in terms of outright talent. And I think that kind of leads in from what Charlie was talking about there about maybe not giving Alvaro the respect that he deserves. On this bike, on the Ducati, him, his riding style, his package, he can make a big difference. He is a very special rider. He wasn't that special on the Honda, but he is on this bike. And when the overall package works, he's clearly as good as anyone else.
1: Yeah, I think so. And he's obviously got a huge experience. He, look at all those years he had in GPs before he got anywhere near Superbike. Um, he was always thought of as a, a a better rider than some of his results in MotoGP. Um, yeah, they had a lot of problems in 19. I think everybody's worked hard to not have those problems. The bike's a lot better. It's a lot more stable. Um, look at what he did in 19. Obviously, there was a bike problem that's ongoing for Honda. It's not quite there. Um, and look at what happened. As soon as Alvaro got back on what is a better I.e., more refined, more consistent, as Charlie said, that there's consistency. He's, he's able to do that now. And importantly, and I agree with Charlie that they don't have any bogey tracks anymore. That said, um, he did crash for his own fault. There was no reason for him to fall at that, that corner. That was a, a human error. So he's shown he is a human. He's, he's human. It's not like, um, you know, he's Rossi or somebody like that that almost never makes mistakes. So, uh, but yeah, he is. He's, he's certainly, uh, as good a rider as anybody in the paddock um, and part of that is because of his experience
0: Charlie obviously enough the crash that we saw for Bautista it was a bit different to what we have saw Maybe whenever you look at the Honda crashes or even the crashes, like what we saw whenever he was racing in 2019, this was just, Goddards can catch everyone out. You hit a bump on the entry and that's that's the bike gone. We saw a lot of bikes really struggling through there, even like you looked at the fairing shaking on any of the super slow-mos whenever they were hitting the bumps and you know it's, it's off-camber through there. There's a lot that's happening in that section and obviously Bautista just got caught out, but you know one swallow doesn't make a summer and he was bouncing straight back on Sunday.
2: Well, I think that's one of the beautiful things about Donington being such a a gorgeous old-style circuit is there's a lot of nuance there, there are bumps there, there's a lot of stuff you have to learn. And actually, um, it was Ike Laquona who demonstrated a lack of circuit knowledge when he came out of Redgate ran wide off the end of the kerb, didn't want to shut the throttle, thought that he could get the bike back on the track when everybody, you know, if you if you know Donington well, you know if you're carrying too much speed out of riggate, you ain't getting back on the track. You have to roll the throttle if you're going to have any chance of saving it. And of course he speared off and that was just, you know, the guy's only, you know, he, he was in, I think it was in FP1 or FP2, so he hadn't had a lot of experience. And that's one of the beautiful things about circuits like Donington is there is a lot of nuance. That um, bump of God, like you said, Steve, I, it catches a lot of people out. And I don't think Alvaro. Did anything wrong? It was just, you know, one of those things. But the other thing I think you have to remember with Alvaro is that he's a lot stronger from being at Honda. He's had two dodgy years there that were really hard. He crashed his brains out. It was a tricky team to work with. HRC is a tricky team. It's made him stronger. He's more experienced now. And that's, that for me is the difference between Alvaro and 19. The bike might have changed a little bit, but Alvaro, I think, is stronger as a person. Yeah, you
0: can't have as many setbacks as he had the last couple of years and not learn a lot from it. I thought just about your circuit knowledge as well through Redgate Term one. I thought one of the more interesting battles we saw at the weekend was race one for the podium, Lowe's against Reading. Lowe's obviously tons of experience from the British Championship, World Championship at Donington. Scott Reading, I think whenever he was racing in BSB, they might have had six races at Donington that year. So that the last couple of years in a superbike, first few years of his Grand Prix career. But we saw them come through Redgate and then down in towards Hollywood's to put the bike down the inside they closed it you have to have total faith that the other rider knows everything about the track as well otherwise both of you could have a massive crash and i thought this was like one of those incidents where you saw a lot of circuit knowledge around a tricky track made a big difference
2: yeah that's what i think it'd be very interesting to see how scott does at most actually because when you look at the the, the i spoke to um Seraphina Foti about what makes that track hard for Ducati and he said basically it's to do with the bumps yeah that bike does not ride over the bumps as good as certain other bikes and I just wonder with Scott Redding whether um the new Calix swing arm and the other new bits and bobs they got on that bike just made that bike very good on the bumps and that was his strength I mean he was sideways a lot of time and it was a fantastic battle with him him and Alex but I just wonder whether um that Calex swing arm made that that bike was particularly good at Donington because it was so good over the dumps, uh, dumps over the, over the bumps. I don't know that, but I think it'll be interesting to see how he goes at Most.
0: Yeah, there's not too many good dumps at Donington, unfortunately. That's one of the areas <laughs> where you do need to improve a little bit. But um, obviously enough, the, the the swing arm from BMW was one of the big talking points, but that wasn't the only thing. We, we talked to Scott on Friday, Gordo, when he said that, a new seating position, he new footrest, new handlebar position, a lot of changes to that bike ergonomically for him made a big difference as well as the swing arm. The swing arm, we first found out about it at Aragon. So, round one, they've spent four or five months developing this with Calyx. Obviously, Calix in the Moto 2 class have a lot of production development they have to do as well. So, this was maybe a little bit on the back burner until it was properly ready. But, Donington, it really worked really well. And, like Charlie said, it's going to be interesting to see how that translates to most.
1: Yes, um, I mean Most is a very different racetrack and millions and millions of changes in direction which will be the most important thing. Um, but they've made uh, surface improvements so there may not be as many bumps as we experienced the last time. Um, we've yet to see exactly where and how much and how well. Um, but that I think it's the as it's much Scott getting used to the bike as the other way around. He's ridden certain types of bikes all his career and he said to make a major change but once Scott just gets to a point whereby either he's, hap- he's happy or he knows he's not going to get any more, sooner or later he just brings a bit more himself. But he needs to have a settled package and they haven't got that yet. What we have seen is what, they got, what happened when he got a better package at Donington immediately there he was on the, the short race podium. So nothing but good news to me in the future um, as long as they keep working in the right direction.
0: Yeah, and uh, we're going to talk about the championship contenders in part two of the show. So, obviously, we've got an interview with Jonathan Ray as well that we're going to plug into that section of the show. But just before we take our first ad break, I think a little chat about some of the wild cards we saw as well. Charlie, we're talking about BMW. So, let's kick off with FHO and what we saw from Peter Hickman because this was quite an interesting team over the weekend because there were a few murmurings that maybe they're going to look to potentially do a full world championship season down the line. Obviously, Resources are never going to be an issue for that team. Really well-funded well from uh, Faho But uh, it'd be interesting to see whether or not they would be able to make it work on the world stage. And also, I think for Hickey as well, it'd be a, maybe a step too far, too much of a challenge, because he'd also have to give up his international road racing.
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think Hickey did brilliantly at the weekend. There can't be that many riders that do TTs and BSBs and World Two parks all in about a month. Of each other, but um, it would have been quite nice. And then the one thing I didn't find out was how much support they were getting from BMW. I know that Taz obviously had absolutely everything that Yamaha can give him. He had the full Monty of, of bits that, the, that they can get. I don't think Hickey's support was quite the same as that. So, understandably, I think he was—he was always—he was always, he was never he was going to struggle to stay in the same sort of tier as Taz was going to do. Um, but I thought he did a fantastic job. And obviously enough, one of the big things Gordo was that for. Hickey and for, BMW,
0: for his BMW team, they were trying to get used to the World Superbike's electronics. They couldn't make them work completely. And uh, I think for certain st- stages of the weekend, they were reverting back to their BSB settings, which probably also shows how good of a job Hickey was doing. But what did you make of Taz Mac? It was nice to see a Scotsman on the grid again.
1: Oh, I put that one on to me, like I'm showing some bias or something. Um, end of the day, I think I think Mackenzie did as well as he could do in the circumstances. Um, they had a pretty clean practice there's an awful lot to get used to in one area of the bike now but it was interesting that uh, Taz said that the, the bike in general felt completely different but the biggest thing was the thing we expected was, was electronics and it was his team as well as him that had to get used to it they had to try and get the bike in some kind of setting to let him go out given that he had a, he was unlucky and funnily enough he hit that bump at Goddard which he said he never does and that's why he had that problem and ended up colliding with Vierge. But if you look at the other two races, um, very, very solid in a, in a field where you can write the top 10 pretty much down as the regulars all the time now, whoever was going to come in. So, no, I thought more, more than solid and he's very, very desperate to go and do the championship. He really wants to do it next year.
0: It was effectively a totally different track for him, Charlie as well because in Super Bowl, he went the best part of a second faster than he's ever gone around Donington. And as... As me and you know, Charlie, whenever we've been go-karting with uh, Luke (laughs) Stapleford, we found a second around a racetrack once, two seconds around Core, and suddenly the track was completely different. Even for Taz, that would have been a little bit of a reset.
2: Yeah, straight away. Uh, And also, I think Gordo hit the nail on the head that it's not just Taz that's learning stuff. You then, you know, it's complicated electronics you're dealing with here. So when Taz comes in and says A, B, C, and he wants this, that, and that, um, you know the team then have to deal with that and that's also quite hard it's you know you're dealing with electronics it's like it's like putting new ink in your printer or whatever someone's got to go in there and actually do it and it's hard and they don't have that's why you know the people earning the big bucks in the World Superbike Paddock are the guys dealing with the data stuff because it's super complex and um, as Gordo said you know it's not just Taz he has to get on the bike and ride it that's hard he knows the track but that is hard and he's adapting to a new bike but he's then got to go in and the team have to adapt to his feedback and you know I think um, it's very easy to underestimate the task of what Taz had on that weekend and, and Peter Hickman as well.
0: Yeah, Gordo, the only reason I came to you first about Taz is because I've got a, a good question for Charity then as well. Because as an official representative of Eurosport Charity, what about uh, James Tolson's comments on Friday whenever he was saying that uh, you know, it was a mistake to do the wild card. Obviously, over the weekend, we were able to see that. It worked out really
2: well for Taz, and he was able to show something good. I think he was a bit misunderstood, actually, because his point was really was that, look, if you're going to get, you get one chance, right, sometimes at these things. And for that one chance, you've got to remember, James is an absolute perfectionist, yeah? And what he was saying was, is that we were bemoaning the fact that Taz, you know, he was supposed to have the deal was that Taz was going to have a wildcard at Assen and a test and so on and so forth, so that when he got to the British race he would be way more up to speed than he actually was now by having um, off having a, a tricky off season and so on and so forth it didn't happen so he basically had to arrive on thursday bang the bike together and get on with it and james's point i think was that you know sometimes discretion is the better part of valour and you might be better off waiting um which i have to say i don't agree with james because sometimes you don't you don't get a second chance but his point was is that sometimes if you're not if you're going to turn up uh Not necessarily as prepared as you can be, he thinks that sometimes you're better off um waiting for the right moment to come because james's point is is that if you're not prepared and you arrive and you do badly, that's your chance gone and I kind of see where he's coming from on that, and I think he was slightly mis i think he was slightly um misunderstood in that what he was actually saying.
0: Yeah, I think obviously at 27 by the end of this season, which would be 27 for next year, Taz is at that time, to where he really needs to make that move and needs the opportunity. And last weekend, you'd have to think that he did enough to make Yamaha at least have to to think seriously about it. There's two open seats at GRT. He obviously went in, outperformed Kota Nazane right from the get-go, which you would have expected. He was pretty close to Locatelli and Gerloff as that, uh, as that next Yamaha group for most of the weekend as well. So it was certainly enough to make Yamaha have to consider him seriously.
1: Well, Yamaha um, have got a pyramid system. They keep talking to me about it and they have done it over the years. They do miss people out from it sometimes. uh, And obviously they don't come to terms with others. Mahias won the World Championship, didn't go to World Superbike with them, which was the plan to start with. Um, If they have a pyramid system and they want to unite the Yamaha family, um, the obvious place for people from national racing to go to is World Superbike or World Supersport. Um, therefore if you take it if you take them in a word and you take what the performance of the two guys who are in the second level Yamaha team which has actually got pretty much first level equipment and backup and everything else and support from Yamaha, um, certainly cooperation from Yamaha uh, why wouldn't you put Taz on the bike and the next fast American guy and so on, you know there's been a couple of years of the same people and the results haven't come the way they wanted, I think Geloff's got all the talent in the world, but it isn't quite isn't quite happening for him. And Nozani's probably never going to get any better. So there's there's two, two potentials for Taz or anybody else that might want to come in.
0: Well, Charlie, just before I come to you, one question, because obviously BSB, you've got Brad Ray, has had a really really strong start to the season leading the championship for another Yamaha team. If you're given a choice between Taz or Brad Ray which would which would Yamaha take, to think? Because obviously it looks like Domi Aguilar is not going to get the opportunity. He's a bit too old for them with the, like Gordo said, that pyramid scheme of trying to work riders up.
2: Well, uh, I asked Domi, um Andrea Dossolay about this. In fact, I've asked him in the last couple of rounds about, uh, you know, who they think their rider's going to be. I think Nazane's definitely going. off, I think his future is in doubt at the moment. Um, but Yamaha, uh, Dossolay said to me, he said, the thing is, is Yamaha pride themselves on the fact that it's a process and you start at the bottom and actually they can take you from the blue crew when you're 11, you know, 12, 13 years old, right up to MotoGP. And that's, I think that's definitely the problem with Domi Agata is that his age is working against him, even though he's riding out of his skin. It's the ethos of Yamaha to take riders in, a, to, to put them into a onto a belt, basically, that moves them up. Now, if you're Domi Agata, as an extreme example of that, is that there's not really that far he can go, okay, he can jump onto a superbike, and so on and so forth but Yamaha I would guess a look in to the younger riders which but Taz and Brad they're not young in the world of motorcycle racing at the moment It, it you know which sounds really really harsh but that's what I think for me if I had to say that's you know I don't know what Yamaha are thinking or deciding but I know that they like to bring people from from the bottom and point them up towards the top and I think that's certainly something that's that they hold very dear to them that's their ethos
0: yeah, and I think you'd have to look at, in Supersport, Baldessari had another really good weekend. We've already talked about how tricky Donington is to learn his first weekend there and did a really good job in the Supersport class. He's been close to Domi. He's only missed out on the podium in one race. He's certainly a rider that would warrant being locked up by Yamaha. He's a young Italian rider.
2: Okay, so 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 here's, here's the problem for me, is that the MotoGP... Circus is now functioning so well in that you can start in a talent cup and you can get into MotoGP in a very short space of time, relatively compared to how it used to work, and that's happening a lot now. So if you shine in Moto three, you can find yourself in MotoGP in two years' time, yeah, and that's fantastic, right? And what that means is that now people are falling out of MotoGP, and now World Superbike is looking a much much better proposition for them. Consequent, you know, so consequently, three. Moto2 riders have come into Supersport and they're dominating it, right? Because Moto2 is such a hard championship. You arrive in Supersport and you're better, I think that's fair to say, because they are squashing everybody else and they get good rides for good teams. But the problem with that is is that how does that affect, you know, there's a knock-on effect of that. And that is that where do you look for your riders now? So if you're, you know, a GRT team, for example, do you go with Brad Ray um, or do you start looking into you know, Moto3 and Moto2 paddock. Do you see what I mean? Because there are now with people, the way things are moving is that, you know, you used to be able to get into MotoGP and you could sit in GP for a reasonable amount of time as long as your results were okay. Whereas now, if you don't perform in GP, you're out. So because there's always, because there's so much talent coming through from below. Do you see what I mean? So that 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 great process of getting these guys who are, you know, you shine and you get to the top really quickly um, that's there is an effect to that, and that is that if you get to the top and you don't really shine, you've got to get out, and it's where you go. And that to me is where we're starting to find. I mean, we're, I think we're sort of in uncharted territory at the moment because the way that the championships are now working with this great sort of flow of riders coming up and moving quickly through the series, what happens at the other end of that with the riders that are coming back down? And that's where things are, 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 are tricky at the moment, I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, I agree with uh, most of what you said there, Charlie. Certainly, we are going to be looking to the MotoGP paddock and increasingly, they are going to be looking to us uh, for some top riders. But if you look at the exact situation we're in with Yamaha now, if you assume that there are two seats for next year going in Yamaha, then if it was me, and I'm not a manager, but if it was me, I would be taking one from MotoGP or past MotoGP experience, even like Agatha, give him a year contract, see what happens. And the other one should be the last year's British champion and Mackenzie. If you're looking at it in those terms, it's not an age thing. Superbike is a, not an age paddock. It hasn't traditionally been. Even Bautista's near in retirement, Jonathan's near in retirement, and they've both signed on again. So, but we do need to feed in younger people. If I was Yamaha, I'd be saying, okay, for performance and maybe guaranteed ability, you go one MotoGP, And if you're going to look at, well, we're going to support our own system of bringing people through the ranks, and then you would say, okay, Mackenzie or Bradley or whoever. But mackenzie has been British champion, I think you need to minimum be that level, proven, consistent, before you even think about going to World Championship or else you'll just get eaten alive. I think
0: as well, it's also worth for Yamaha that they're not only looking at Britain, they've also got, obviously, Jake Gagne over in America. He's been able to win the Moto America Championship last year. He's probably going to win it this year as well. He's had a phenomenal run, really. If you think back to when he came back to Moto America after his year in World Superbikes, nobody really thought we'd ever hear from him again. And he finished second to Cambodia, won the championship, and uh, doing really well again this year. He looks like a rider that could also make that transition now because Gerloff has shown us that a rider at the front in Moto America capable of winning races dominating that those riders can make the switch but obviously enough what's going to work against Gagne is he's been there and it didn't work out too well with Tenkadi.
2: So so while I agree with you both what happens when for me the the World Superbike Championship is now a much more attractive proposition than to MotoGP than it used to be it's 13 rounds um, you can come here you can earn pretty decent money you can win some races have a great time life is good and I think that's a really important thing if you're looking at if you're being a you know a midfield MotoGP rider who's going to earn decent money but you're going to race 22 rounds of the year plus all the testing and everything that goes with it a lot of stress so while you're Yamaha if you're going back to that GRT squad and looking at who you're going to pick and you could have a Gagne or you could have a Taz McKenzie and I agree with you on all of those things what happens if Paul Espagaro turns around and says well actually I'm available next year
0: well Paul did come and and say that he went to KRT and he wanted yeah, to exactly. see what the options where obviously it looks like he's going to stay at Tectua. Alex Rins did the same. He's obviously stayed on LCR Honda for, for next year. But MotoGP riders do want to come now and mm. the success of someone like Lecawona has helped that. We've seen in even someone like Xavi Vieira that's uh, looked at uh, coming across for this year has done a really good job for Honda, but he's a rider that in Moto2, we never really saw that much from. He'd have some flashes, but he was never consistent. He looks like a much better superbike rider than he did Grand Prix rider.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think um, someone of that kind of quality would go straight to a factory team here, like, like Oda and so on have. I think we're talking well, slightly apples and oranges here. We're talking about promoting people through the junior team inside world championship racing, superbike racing. So you would put them into the Bonovo BMW team or the GRT Yamaha team if they're coming from national championships to let them learn and catch up. A MotoGP rider is going to, a a full-on MotoGP rider is going to come to some degree down a level, so they can walk straight in a factory ride, and they should be able to to grasp it straight away. So, so maybe it's Andrea Locatelli
2: who, instead of you know, maybe he's the one who's in jeopardy being bumped down into GRT. Maybe that. So that's my point of, like, my big ramble earlier on about the way that the traffic is flowing in MotoGP might be a neg- might mean that we have a, a reverse flow through World Superbikes, and that actually, you know, um you know, anyone, top rack, Bautista, Jonathan ray all those guys might find themselves suddenly, all of a sudden, having to really compete with MotoGP riders who are looking to come to World Superbikes, and that might mean that that sort of flow might might travel back down the championship, if you see what I mean.
0: Yeah, I think obviously enough for someone like Locatelli, he's got his contract for next season, so uh, he should be sorted for there. But his is a Yamaha contract. It is possible that he could be moved around. But you'd imagine Yamaha will try and honour that, keep him where he is, and then leave him in in the prove-all year of next season. Because this year has been a struggle for him. It's been, I say a struggle, he's he's doing what we talked about pre-season, he'd probably do, which is stay roughly where he had been. It's very difficult to make that next step. And for Locatelli, that means winning a race this year. As it is fourth in the championship, a couple of tough rounds for him though, and uh, he's under pressure for that now. But certainly, whenever you're a Locatelli, Rinaldi, Lowe's, LeQuona, Reading, whoever you want to look at, it's that finishing top five in the championship is is the real target
2: because the top three are so set in stone. So here's a question for you both: And if you're, you know, you're you're Yamaha, and you look at Locatelli, how long do you give him? Because he's a brilliant rider, make no mistake. I, I I really rate him. He's a really nice person. But he's a really good rider. He's really solid. But he's not, for me, he's not looking like he's on the cusp of making that step and getting on the coattails of the top three. So how long do you give him? Or do you get rid of him and bring in someone from a GP?
1: I think it depends on what your ambitions are. At the end of the day, Yamaha will have to replace Toprak with someone. And if it's not going to be Locatelli because of advancement, then it's going to have to be somebody from somewhere else, either another team or more likely from MotoGP or somewhere else. Um, When he goes, if he goes to MotoGP, he's your one competitive rider. And that's exactly the same situation with the other top three. You've got one competitive Kawasaki rider every weekend and you've got one competitive Ducati rider every weekend. Whoever they've brought in isn't quite at that level. So I think that actually increases the risk, not the risk, but the, the reality that they're going to play safe and bring in a, a, a MotoGP rider that, as long as he comes with the right attitude, should be a factory rider and capable of winning races in his first year in, in World Superbike Championship. I don't see there being a reason any top MotoGP or top 15 MotoGP rider couldn't come here and perform in a factory team straight away. Um, and, you know, the, the riders coming through our ranks have kind of reached their ceiling because there's a top three above them. But it would be very difficult to fire, demo, or do anything to a guy who's the best of them consistently. You know, that it would be really, really difficult to look at Locatelli and say, sorry, son, you haven't been quite good enough when every other manufacturer's second riders are not doing what he's doing. BMW, theoretically, have got two potential championship-winning riders in the future. And no other fad is nothing but bad luck. So we we'll need to see where those guys end up. But Michael van der Mark, as we've seen, can beat the best on his day and hasn't had the most consistent time, Honda to Yamaha to BMW, injury, injury. So we don't really know the true potential of Michael. And maybe all these injuries, you know, he's a feisty guy. If he can turn that into positivity, saying, right, this is my last chance, then maybe he's the next guy from inside that's going to really step up. He's certainly got the talent. Reading's got the talent to to take over from any of the top guys if he gets a really top bike. Look at what he's done with a bike. that's nowhere near ready at Donington there. So when he hit the if and when the BMW is a truly performing bike, they've got two potential champions in the post three post Batista era when top right gone. That's what we're looking at. That's the reality we're looking at now. Is pretty soon that's going to change completely. Not. a a couple of years it will change completely
0: just one thing really quickly to just move on from one of the things you were saying there Gordo about the riders 15, 16 whatever position you want to look at in MotoGP that could come in and do a really good job you've got Nakagami he's 16th in the standings at the minute Paul Alex Marquez Franco Morbidelli Davi they're all Right down at the bottom of the MotoGP standings, if they were to say that they wanted to go to to World Superbikes, they'd instantly command one of the top bikes on the grid and do a really good job. So, for me, I, I'm in the same boat as Gordo, you know, and 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 it is a case of they're they're a step up as well potentially. Like I think Locatelli's a really great rider. We saw what he could do in the Super Sport class, but is he a rider that's going to win you a Superbike World Championship? If Toprak leaves next year, do Yamaha have the confidence that he's the guy to replace him? And on the basis of what we've seen so far, you couldn't imagine that he is you know, the next guy to win a championship for Yamaha.
2: Hey, Gordo, I've got a question for you. Do you think BMW will get their crap together enough to win a
1: championship? Uh, I'm, I'm old enough and experienced enough, daft enough and, and half educated because of the years I've been there enough. They never say never for anybody. There's no reason why a massive multinational company like that can't, uh, and they have they keep reaffirming their um, their, their positivity towards the championship. Um, they really want to succeed. They've they've come here nearly won it before. Remember, if there had been a few human errors towards the end of the thing, they would have been. They were still challenging. Um, this is full factory. They've got four factory bikes on the grid. I see nothing but good news there. What they don't have, Reading wasn't quite quite as good as Johnny even when he was on a factory Ducati and Michael as we've covered it's possible for him but there has to be a step change Um, in the post Ray Bautista and possibly top-rack era obviously yes because it's not easy to replace somebody I mean Johnny's the only guy in a Kawasaki that's really really doing it every weekend Alvaro the only guy in Ducati that's really really doing it every weekend, even Reading had some bad weekends on Ducati Alvaro hasn't shown that um, this time round. So it's more a case of what they're going to face. So are they going to win it now? Could they win it this year? Obviously not. Next year? It's possible, but it's more of a people thing to get through. So the BMW effort, I think is probably capable of being at that level. Um, When they decide, if they make the right decisions, they can make all the wrong decisions, spend 10 times more money than they've got now and finish fifth. So, if the question is possible... That's what they're doing, isn't it? Um, at the minute, yeah, but, well, they're, they're not spending more money than other people. I think they're putting in the same amount of effort as other people now. I don't see any reason why if everything points the right direction. The talent in, in amongst all the, in that team and everything else in, is all there. It has to work in the same direction. There has to be a kind of plan that's flexible enough to change if it's not working, but it all has to point in the right direction. I've got a very British team in one way, and then the German guys with a Dutch guy above them doing all the technical stuff. If the decisions are made correctly, the resources are there for them to do it. So whether or not they're going to do it is going to be up to them. I think it's entirely capable for that uh, manufacturer with a high performance bike to challenge. There's nothing special about the Kawasaki uh, base bike. The BMW is a theoretically better race bike than the Kawasaki is. So that's what they do. Why would you
2: say the BMW is a theoretically better race bike? Because all the people I've spoken to, and that includes world superbike riders and BSB riders, say that that bike is weird. And that's the word they use. It's weird. It doesn't respond like a normal motorbike. It doesn't ride like a normal motorbike. It's weird. So maybe that's the problem is that that bike inherently ain't going to win races because it ain't good enough as a race bike.
1: The bike is much more race-oriented than the Kawasaki. The boring and stroke figures in the engine, the architecture of the, the chassis, everything about it is more old school, right? And it's a triumph of development over uh, design in many ways and all the years of experience and so on I've got. But uh, yeah, and I don't, I'm do not i not disagreeing with that and the BMW is a bit weird, but maybe that swing arms de-weirded it
3: mm-hmm. in, in one
1: large degree. If they can find the other ways of doing it, the biggest thing that electronic, uh, BMW is different from everyone else is electronics. So maybe somebody somewhere is going to have to go, you know what, let's just get the same as everybody else. Let's not try to do it our own way with probably a lot of the software bases and, and engineering uh, to do with cars, which is so far away from bikes and electronics. Car electronics are totally different from stuff that you need in bikes and what you need, what the rider needs in bikes. And that's where maybe their weak point's been for a long time Is is that understanding.
2: Just, just one quick question for you, Gordon. Now, this is a theme that I've heard a lot all the time that BMW have been in the championship, certainly over the last four or five years. And one of the criticisms that I hear leveled at BMW quite regularly and still being leveled at BMW is that they
1: don't listen to the rider. Do, do you think that's true? If they don't listen to the riders and don't respond to what the riders want and need, they're never going to get anywhere, however much the resources they throw at it. we, You know, I've spoken about this in the past. If you don't, give the rider what he eventually needs on the track. I need the wheels painted pink. Well, paint the wheels pink. Who cares? Yeah. If it makes a guy feel happier and more settled, just do it. Don't let him do something engineering-wise, which is not going to work. I want triangular wheels. That might not work. But every reasonable request from the rider and everything that needs to be there. The problem with big companies like that, and especially um, it's very easy to say, no, no, we know better because they're such big big multinational things that whoever's coming from the top is correct because there's more people they tell you know they tell people what to do more often. They have a plan and it's difficult for certain companies to deviate from a plan. They can't quite put it all out of house. They can't quite keep it all in house because they don't have the knowledge and they have to bring other people in. But when you get Scott Redding finishing third, at Donington, the weekend that they get new parts on the bike after a bit of a test that they did, that they had to cut short, and get on a podium straight away. I, I just don't see any reason why it is not possible. Whether it will happen is is up to the human beings that are behind it all, because racing is still a human sport. Technical, yes, but as I say, there is absolutely no reason that the collection of people and the collection of things that they have underneath them cannot be made to work in a more consistent basis it's time they need more time and they need to make the right decisions if they make the wrong decisions they're screwed yeah, three top fives for scott
0: at the weekend if bmw can come away with three top sevens at most i think that's a good sign that all of the upgrades did work charlie you've been asking you've been asking a few quick questions charlie i've got a quick question for you
2: oh god all right go on then hit me hit me up <laughs> <laughs> charlie do you want to hear about the latest products from fly racing oh man why didn't you tell me this question was coming i've been waiting for this literally since i woke up this morning steve go on tell me all about it roll the ijb
1: fly racing introduces the new fl2 glove with molded hard knuckle protection this race inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen compatible fingers Available in three colors and sizes, from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the
3: perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more.
0: Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast brought to you by Fly Racing and Renthal Street. So, we've had a big discussion about everything except what seems like the most important riders from the Donington Park weekend. Gordo, really quickly... Before we have an interview with Jonathan Ray, what were your thoughts on the battle between the two of them? Because particularly in race two, we saw the first half of the race, Johnny was really strong, trying to battle, just couldn't make the move, couldn't make it stick. Race one, we saw in the really hot track temperatures that the Yamaha just had that step.
1: Well, Toprak found his happy place on the bike again via uh, his crew chief and everybody else involved. Um, And look what he did with it. Immediately at his favourite racetrack, Um, He hasn't been happy on the bike all year, that's obvious, Um, and suddenly he was happy on the bike at his favourite racetrack with the mega determination um, after a difficult start to the year, and he didn't look like, I mean, he's always out of shape, but he didn't immediately look like he was going to really put a foot wrong, not really. Um, It was a massive surprise on Friday, we didn't, I don't think anybody really saw that result coming, but it was the changes they made to the setup of the bike. To his confidence, and it suddenly just clicked in one session, and oh, okay, we're going to go with that. Johnny just didn't have enough at um, at that track uh, to take the top rack, and that was a surprise. He tried harder the second race, but of all things, it was his brakes heating, overheating, in the very hot temperature sitting in a slipstream behind. Ironically, it was sitting behind top rack, which he had to do. That then ended up messing up his his final ability to chase, and then he got caught by Batista. So, um. Yeah, difficult one for Johnny because he really expected to win, and when we saw how fast he was in the Superpole and everything, you know, he thought, "Wow, you know, here we go," and it just didn't happen. But so it just that's the good thing. It, it was such a surprise. As another aspect of this weekend, it was pleasing. It was a surprising weekend, and they end up with the results.
0: Charlie, obviously, the last five races, Toprax only dropped <coughs> five points. He's had four wins and a second, and Gordo said it best there whenever he said he was at his favourite racetrack. Everything about Donington he seems to love, and especially those final couple of corners. The Melbourne loop and Goddard are two corners that everyone hates for the entire calendar, except for Toprack, it looks like.
2: What's weird is that, um, speaking of Toprack all weekend, I mean, as we all do, he didn't seem happy at all all weekend. I spoke to him on Saturday evening after he'd won the first race, first long race, and I was like, how do you feel about tomorrow? And he was like, oh, I'm not happy I said, well, what about the Super Pole race? Well, we'll see how that goes. But, you know, and then I spoke to him after the Super Bowl race. Um, like I get the best chat I have with them really is generally just before I do my Parc Fermé interview when they come over to me and then they have to wait for about 30 seconds until they, till we, till they come to air on TV. So I have a quick chat and I go, how was it? And they go, oh, you know, they're deep. They've literally just stepped off the bike. So it's quite, you always get a, a pretty honest opinion there, I think. And actually, although Top Rank obviously did brilliantly. I don't think at any point that he thought he had, I don't think he felt confident at all. Whereas Jonathan was the reverse. I think Friday, by Friday night, Jonathan was really confident and was slightly surprised by Toprak's pace. And Jonathan, I mean, like, he's, he's not happy, right? He had, a, he actually had a really good weekend. He made 20 odd points back on Alvaro, which was the, which was the job for the weekend. Um, but Jonathan's a, a winning addict. And if he doesn't win races, he's, Goes into withdrawal, and I think that's what happened at the weekend. Even though he could see the bigger picture and knows he's had a decent weekend, he was hacked off because he wants to win races. He's, he's addicted to winning races, particularly at home. So I think that he was probably left on a, under a bit of a cloud, even though he'd done the job, which was to turn up and make points back. So it was a they weren't. It wasn't as you'd expect, if you see what I mean.
1: Yeah, no, I, I totally understand what you're saying, Charlie. I think uh, ultimately. Um, after every the to top rack that's affected his psychology although he avoided the question twice when he was asked on Sunday night about it all um, but ultimately I think he was just under so much stress because he'd, he'd now set himself a new dream to win three races in a weekend and he'd made the first part of that on Saturday night but he had two more to go and then he made Super pole. I think he was probably his most stressed at the start of the third race because he knew I've said this in public I want to do this now I have to deliver um, and then he went and did it and um, so that's what, uh, Johnny, Johnny, um, yeah, he, he needs to win. He has to win. Um, him and his team are so used to doing it. I think 117, if I remember right, race victories those guys have got. The numbers are just off of scale compared to anybody that's been in World Superbike before. And remember, Johnny had all those years on Honda. He won 15 races in all those years, six years, whatever it was in Honda, before he even really started on the winning trail. Imagine what his figures would be like compared to Fogarty or or Bayless or any, but the other really greats of the championship if he'd been on a truly winning bike like the Kawasaki has turned out to be for his whole career in superbike. I mean, he'd have 10 world championships. It's crazy. So his expectations are not normal because his ability to win races is not normal. You know, Mick Doohan was the angriest guy in the world when he didn't win a 500GP for those five years. Um, but nobody can win them all but um, I think that's you're, you're exactly right that Johnny is a winning addict his expectation is to win at every racetrack at least one race a weekend through ideally three they, that's what they do I think that's why they're so successful backed up by their abilities but it's a mentality thing sooner or later those great sportsmen it goes back to mentality courage inner strength self-belief all those positive things but when you know you can win you have to win. And when you don't, the world's not right. Literally the whole world is wrong. Ah uh, hold on, I'm not in the top step. And that Johnny's one of those people that's got that in his head.
0: I tell you what, Charlie. Just whenever you hear Gordo listing all the virtues that a champion needs, it, it seems like Gladiator when uh, Caesar was telling his son all the things that he didn't have. And th- this is what it reminded me of for you, Charlie. If only it was courage. If only it was all those things for you, Charlie. You and he be might champion. be talking
2: about you, Stephen. Podcast presenting and being, you know, the best at podcast presenting, which you clearly are. Uh, that's that that that's Adam, actually. Look,
1: well, Caesar is the you know. Charlie is the Caesar of the the, the padded microphone. That's it. There's no there's no other emperors for us. Just remember the aids of March, Charlie, right? Before you get too cocky just remember the ends of march oh right?
2: jimmy i can't i can't understand you what you saying what is this foreign language no, you're speaking no no i don't know, oh, know scottish know. isn't know i forgot it's that beautiful. sorry mate yeah. they, they, no i i love
1: it i love it I, I the google translates on me, fire but, uh, <laughs> the google translate doesn't cover me that's the problem that's exactly <laughs> don't right. Right. nothing covers don't... you now. <laughs> there is no Glaswegian <laughs> translation on google mate. i wish there was
0: well let's hear from uh, jonathan ray now just before we finish up the show Jonathan Ray, thanks for joining us on the rental Street Sessions interview for the Paddock Pass podcast. And it's been a while since we had you on the podcast, actually. But uh, we're going to kick off just with a little bit about your training away from World Superbikes. Obviously, motocross has always been your main outlet for training. And uh, I think it's fair to say that you're more of a frustrated motocrosser than a successful road racer in your own mind.
3: Yeah, well, it, w- it was like that in uh, the very beginning. You know, I was quite reluctant to change the road racing back in 03. But and I don't want to bag out the sport because I love it more than probably my own job. But I, I sustained so many injuries without even having a big crash. You know, twists and turns or impact injuries, and that was um, that was tough. It took its toll on my body. You know, my knees are pretty bad. I've had um, two ACL reconstructions and an MCL reconstruction in my um, sorry an ACL and a, MCL on my left knee and an ACL on my right. The meniscus and, and cartilage in my right knee's non-existent you know it's quite bone on bone so I make a right racket walking up the stairs and they were all sustaining motocross but in saying that it's uh it's a sport that I love the most I probably follow motocross and supercross more than I follow MotoGP um and it's yeah it's where my heart lies at a time I would have said I would have swapped my world championships for motocross world championships but you know I'm so content what i do now motocross is just a it's a passion it's a fun thing um something i use in my training quite a lot more so in pre-season because i get the jitters that when i start the season that anything could happen you know motocross because um i i think it's a tough sport when you're a road racer and you're training because if you didn't grow up motocross and there's risk everywhere. You know, you don't know the techniques when you get cross rutted or you wash out over a few bumps or whatnot. So then it goes to the opposite effect that you can ride around at an okay level and, and ride round, or that I was at a decent national level. You know, I won British motocross um, championships in the schoolboy classes and uh, a lot of national championships back home. So I ride fast so when it goes wrong it can go horribly wrong as well You know, I had a big one in January at my my training track back home in Desert Martin and um, it sort of knocked the wind out of me and I went to Spain to ride hard pack then just before the season started did a few couple of week block there and got a lot of riding under my belt prepared me for the season but you always get out of that camp thinking you know, thank god I'm in one piece so um, I've been I've been on the bike once or twice since the start of the year and um, but I love it man it's unbelievable
0: obviously enough for you, Desert Martin's been second home really over the course of the last few years for you. What is it about the facility up there that draws you to it?
3: You know, it's where I grew up. Um so I have a lot of my childhood memories and um it's um it's it's one of them where you drive through the gates and up that hill and the track just opens up and you, you remember the the motocross Grand Prix that have been held there when Gordon Crockard, you know, probably the the greatest of all time from our country to ride world motocross, you know, beating Stefan Everts and and guys like that that really, um, you think, oh, you know, I race around here there was always that thing, you know, it held a British motocross championship for years and um, the English riders would always travel across, it was the only home race we had and there was all these jumps, That I mean the English kids were really good at jumping We didn't grow up, aside from Desert Martin and a couple of, uh, you know, Johnstown down south was quite jumpy and super crossy. Dundalk as well had a good track that was, had a lot of big tabletops.
0: Always worth mentioning Dundalk, it had a great
3: place too. Do you remember that place? (laughs) So they had that bridge jump, like an up and under, it was cool. But Desert Martin had big jumps and I remember my dad telling me after the practice at the British Championship on a 60, he said, Jonathan, listen, if we're going to win this race, you've got to jump the step up on the first lap. So it's off the start, 90 degree right ski jump, and this big step up on a 60cc bike. Because the English kids would be doing it. And uh, yeah, whole shot at it. And I just remember going over that ski jump and holding it, like hooking the gear and holding the thing flat stick on a 60. And I sent it, and it was a big, big jump. But um, yeah, it was cool. You know, I, that was 97, and I won the British Championship that weekend. And. Um, that was super nice memory. Obviously
0: enough, for your bikes at home, they're Kawasaki machines that you have, but what changes have you made from the stock bike to to bring it up to the spec that you wanted for whenever you're training?
3: So straight away, um, you know, to be fast in motocross, you have to be comfortable. Um, for me, i really fortunate that Showa look after the suspension side of things. And then it's about position-wise and um, you know i'm so fortunate that rental actually look after me in on my team in uh, road racing so much so that in fact i got uh, a bit cheeky and reached out for some uh, handlebars and grips because i was constantly um using the, um i used the soft you know half waffle half diamond uh soft motocross grips the you know they're the iconic grip if you like they brought the you know the the kevlar range out the dual compound range but you know i just like the the old faithfuls that i grew up with you know going back to that uh and then it's handlebar and you know they have so many different handlebar bends uh replica um bends um now most oem models are coming out with rental handlebars as well as standards so um the small upgrade i use is um i just go to the Last season, I used the Fat Bar, which doesn't have a, a crossbar mount to reinforce it, but um, I've gone back to the, the Twin Walls now, which, you know, it's a bar that I finished my schoolboy career on, and um, they're used by all the world, top, any of your heroes, you know, growing up, McGrath, Reedy, you know, it's, um, they all use rental, so that was um, pretty, pretty proud, and it makes me, uh, not proud. Makes me feel cool, you know. It's like makes me feel cool having rental products on my bike, and of course, then there's the, the chain wheels, sprockets, and chains. Um, so they've been able to keep me turning like that because I would say my bike's always looked the part. But mechanically, I'm not very good at um, looking after them. There'll be bolts falling out here and there. But uh at least now with the supply of chains and sprockets, there's no excuse to to not keep the wheels turning.
0: Well you mentioned there two of your heroes, McGrath and Reed. Like what's it been like whenever you've gone out riding with them?
3: Yeah, I was able to ride with Jeremy back in 15. Um in fact we reciprocated and he came and rode my superbike at Laguna, I think, a couple of years later. So I'm just really grateful for all them connections through Monster and Kawasaki. You know, we were able to make that happen. We went and rode at Pala Raceway in California. You Growing up, we talked about Desert Martin, growing up in Ireland, that was all pie in the sky, like pipe dream, getting to go to California and ride a motocross bike, let alone ride with your childhood hero. So, you know, I followed him all through his career. I think the coolest thing, way cooler than I've ever done and more balls than I ever had was Jeremy changed manufacturers. You know, he was a Honda guy. Then he was like, he went to ride for Suzuki. He wasn't scared to, to change and... That was that brought so much hype. You know, he had a he had a career rival in Jeff Emig as well. That that made the sport took the sport to where you know that was my era of growing up and what I seen. So um, and he when I met him, I asked Kawasaki, could we do a helmet swap? You know, do you reckon we could? Um... And I thought you know this is just some buff PR day for him that he's been asked to come along, but he seemed genuine, genuinely interested in in road racing, and then we were able to make it happen that he came and rode my superbike at Laguna, of all places, and that was really nice to see him ride and enjoy that.
0: I suppose at least if he's going anywhere, I might as well be somewhere that looks like a motocross track as well, so Laguna's not bad for that. You you mentioned about he was brave enough to change manufacturers. Obviously, you're eight years into Kawasaki this year, contracts up at the end of this year. What's the prospects?
3: Prospect just, right now, it's that time of the year, you know, where all the chatter goes on, you know, superbike, the strange thing about superbike now is we're so deep into the year, but we've only done you know I think it's four races, is it four races? So in the next two weeks we'll be halfway through the season. We're going on another huge summer break, and then the last six races come in quick succession. So aside from Alvaro slotting into position um, for his future, not much else really is happening right now. It's it's that time where I'm looking about my future. I thought honestly two three years ago we'd be we'd be talking about retirement um but the last couple of years it's really i think the downtime away from the track during covid really reignited a flame that i love this sport i've got so much more to give also getting beat last year in the championship um it's reignited a bit of a flame to to keep pushing on keep getting the best out of myself and um so yeah my in fact we're talking here at, at Donington. uh my manager's just flying in um, for the weekend so we'll we'll have a bit of a chit chat and see what's going on and um, yeah no doubt in the coming weeks and summer break we'll know exactly what's happening
0: obviously enough this year seems like it's been very different to when Alvaro's on the Ducati in 19 or the last couple of years it looks like you know, you're able to fight with the Ducati far more often like a, obviously Mazano, I think we've got a pretty clear example of some places where the Ducati still has an inherent advantage but it looks like it's a lot closer
3: now yeah I think so you know Mizano our 19 was frustrating because you know I, I was getting beat so bad by big margins in the beginning um I didn't really see a way of winning that championship and then just through time persistence you know waking up understanding that it was a new sunrise a new opportunity and trying to do a good job it came back you know and i minimized mistakes and maximized opportunities and i think that's what this year's about as well you know just taking it day by day mazano wasn't a day for us for example but the first three races of the season were you know aside from coming together with top Rack in in Asin, we i think we maximized every race you know we were able to fight for wins or seconds uh, Mazzano was just tough um, we we don't we understand potentially why but of course you can't win them all, you know. Some weekends you're gonna struggle, and we struggled with the fourth place in the in the race two, and we were on the on the box both other races, but um, just not quite close enough in that race two. So Donington here, uh, Moss, two tracks where I think we can do a good job. Most last year I struggled. I was still going down that avenue of being reluctant to use that soft SCX tire. This year it's um it's a weapon in our bike. You know it doesn't cause the same problems pushing the front that it did last year. So, I feel um, these two races coming in quick succession can be a good opportunity for us to try and uh, bridge the gap in the championship a little bit and um, go into the summer break in a good way.
0: Just before we finish up, Johnny. Obviously, when you look at a three-way title fight like this. Toprack's a little bit behind the curve at the moment, but when you look at when you have to
3: battle with Bautista, when you have to battle with like how different is the mindset for you? Well, they're two mentally very different riders, technically different riders, and they're on different bikes as well, which, which you have to race them in different ways. Um, it's a hard one, you know, without giving too much away um, in strategy. You have to race with them differently. Sometimes um, with Toprak, especially after Aston, you have to you have to pick your battles sometimes. Um, with Alvaro, I think uh, every corner has to be a battle because of how their bike works. But um, it's good because you know, if you have a good weekend, you can really take a lot of points out of one of them that has a a bad weekend, and we see you mentioned Top Rack's that bit out of it. I actually, right in the middle, I don't know if I'm bang in the middle of, of the points, but I look at them both as the same. You know, at the end of the championship, I also see that Top Rack could be a potential winner as as much as Alvaro. So um, I think there's so much win- so much racing left, and um, I'm excited because win or lose, they're two good riders and good manufacturers, and good, well-supported teams now, and it heightens that feeling when you win because you know you're beating good guys also it's um it makes it disappoint more disappointing as well when you don't win because um or you're third or you're worse you know because you can be assured if you have a bad day it's still going to be them two guys on the podium so you have to minimize them days yeah.
0: obviously enough, alvaro's come over he's won a lot of races in a position to win a championship in 19 strong position this year as well Scott Redding's come over in recent years. He's been able to win a lot of races, challenge for a championship. Lekwona comes in now, looks very good. Vierge, hey? it looks like MotoGP riders are now looking at superbikes as a as a real option. Now, earlier in their career as well, they view this as maybe not as much not as much time away. Obviously, we're 12, 13 rounds compared to 21, 22 rounds. You know, it's a championship that looks a lot more appealing now than it did, say, five years ago.
3: Yeah, I, I do always think that... <laughs> i don't see why there was never the appeal of course if you're on the the factory contracts in MotoGP, gp it's hard to shy away from especially when you're um you know a young kid with um big dreams you know but i think the reality is uh it's a tough sport as well the trend in MotoGP gp is riders are getting younger and younger uh they're not scared of taking moto three riders now or very young moto two riders like Quartararo. okay who had an incredible um, through the feeder classes but the year he went to MotoGP was had a struggle in Moto2 I don't think he was I think he won one or one race in Barcelona would that be right? Yeah he won one, two one was I mean, taken off with a tyre pressure I think that year So um, yeah they tri- they're getting younger and younger so now all of a sudden you find yourself 27, 28 years old and being the old guy over there uh, or older let's say so um, naturally I guess that's the place where they here they want to come here and um, i do unfortunately world superbike is not a feeder class for moto gp um so it's a bit of a a dead stop you know and we're not getting a lot of riders from national championship anymore and the bsb um, c ev iv championships or moto america isn't feeding world superbike so the riders have to come from somewhere and in in recent years it's been Moto 2 to Super Sport or Moto 2 to Superbike and now it's gp to Superbike, so it's it's good, you know. It's um world class riders anyway, and it's the cha- people are talking about the championship again, so it must be something good.
0: Definitely talking about the championship all the way through this year. So thanks for talking to us as well, Johnny. Cheers, mate. Great to hear from Jonathan Ray on the Paddock Pass podcast again for Rental Street Sessions and Charlie. Just to, in the aftermath of that interview, it was announced that Johnny had re-signed with Kawasaki for two years. Obviously, there's a sense of disappointment within the paddock to a certain extent because there was the prospect of maybe changing manufacturers for Ray. As it is, you can't be too disappointed at the prospect of seeing Jonathan have to ride like he's doing for another couple of seasons.
2: Yeah, and we've, like, we've been in this situation before I mean, where Jonathan looked like he was going to jump ship. And the thing that we'll never know because only Jonathan will ever know this is that, you know... It, he says he wants to go to Ducati. He's, he said to me a few times over his career that he'd like to ride on a Ducati. I mean, everybody wants to ride on something else. That's cool. Um, but whether Jonathan seriously was thinking about going to Ducati, we know he had an offer from him, or whether it's a bargaining tool to, to make sure he gets the best deal out of Kawasaki, we'll never, only Jonathan will know that. So it's great that he's staying where he is. Um, I think it's, you know, the level of the championship is based pretty much on him and that bike and if you can beat him and that bike then you're good enough to go anywhere basically so for me he's the um what's the word gordo the the control you know the benchmark benchmark um gordo what about for
0: uh for johnny as well because obviously one of the big things for him was that he wanted to have upgrades of the bike he wanted a new bike from kawasaki really there's been absolutely no noise that this could be something coming down the line
1: yeah, that was the most interesting thing uh, when you read the the press release they put out is, and, and from what Johnny said before, we need more bike, we need a better engine, we need, he said lots of things like that recently, all of which seem to be true. Um, so it's interesting to see what might be in the pipeline. Um, I have no, I have to put my hands up and say I've no idea what's going to in the pipeline, but you might imagine that there's going to be uh, a new homologation. If if that's what they're talking about, maybe there's going to be a new homologation. Maybe there isn't. Maybe they've realised that other people aren't going to bring something so much better in the next two years, and that's given them the confidence to do it. But rules are pretty strict now. It's hard to see what they're going to do without bringing out a new model, a new homologation, something significant. The last time they tried it, it wasn't called a new homologation, so they weren't allowed to have the extra revs that they needed. The engine they've got, they can have a higher performance from it, but they're not allowed by regulation. So there's a lot of potential avenues to make the Kawasaki more competitive than it is. Um, We'll we'll see what ends up happening, but Johnny's got to be confident that he's going to be able to uh, have a bike that's still capable of winning in two years or else he would sign for someone else. You know, he's won won enough in green he could go somewhere else and try and win there. So there must be something keeping him there, and I don't think it's just cash. I don't think it's bigger signing on for you or whatever. I, 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 there has to be a reason why he stays there, as well as all the stuff of, of knowing everybody there and the whole sale being around him as the lead rider. No, I I'm, I was surprised that it happened on the weekend with Johnny. You know, just, you know, I, I thought there was going to be more happening because I spoke to Chuck for quite a while and he said, no, still this and that. So I think maybe, that you know, it wasn't done, It there wasn't, completely done and dusted. But if you asked me before all, I'd say Johnny would have stayed with Kawasaki. Mm. You know, just because, uh, you know, it, Johnny needs things around him a be a certain way. And he always has done since he was a Yeah, somebody.
2: it's a family thing, isn't it? At the end of the day, yeah. it's security. Oh, I, I it, totally... I, I, do you know needs, what?
1: He needs that. He needs that. Don't blame him. I don't blame I him. I would be the same. Yeah.
2: You know? So would I. And actually, you know, there's also one other thing that Jonathan, I think, is pretty famous for, and that is Loyalty. So I okay. yeah, yeah. I I think sure. it, like the idea of going off and racing a Ducati for a couple of years and finishing up like that. It's a lovely idea. It's really romantic and it's lovely. But actually Jonathan's been with Kawasaki a long time. I think that he's I think there's a lot of loyalty to the to everybody in the team, Do you know what I mean? There's some very very strong reasons for him staying at Kawasaki.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I agree. I think it would be difficult for him to put Red on and then turn around and beat all the people that he's he said such a dip. look at how hard it was for him to leave wander. he had two right. chances to do that to go and ride for somebody else in superbike
2: okay, so uh Gordon, what was your high point of the weekend
1: uh the individual high point was seeing top achieve his three wins that when he crossed the line for that third one, it was kind of a depending on your viewpoint just as done after Magn last year, or just happy for the guy because he'd come out and been big and bold and brave enough to say what to do and then achieved it. You know, big grin on his face. Amount, he rode the scooter. You know, he rode his electric scooter into the media center <laughs> one day. When we were sitting there, and uh, it's whoever I think Batista was doing his interview, And the next thing we hear this, zzz, and there's Top smiling, grinning, going around all the Donna cameras at the back of the media center because he was just so happy. It was like, wow, you know, he's he's a real character. So yeah, things like that. I think it's the human things. If I had to pick one, there's a dozen things I could think of, but I'd say Top winning the three. Was just happy, made me, f- made people feel happy. And I don't care who
0: wins. Obviously, enough Gordo upgrades and updates, always important. If you want to keep as up to date as possible on all the latest news within the MotoGP and the World Superbike Paddock, check out patreon.com forward slash podcast. When the MotoGP season resumes at the British Grand Prix at Silverstone, we're going to have full coverage as usual with Neil, Adam, and David getting you up to date each evening of the British Grand Prix weekend. Charlie, though, what was your overall? high point of the weekend at Donington Park.
2: For the race side of things, yeah, Top Rack winning was brilliant. I, would you know, get on really well with Top Rack. He's a really nice guy, so I was really happy to see him do what he wanted to do. But um the crowd there were fantastic, but on a personal level um it was really nice to meet Steve english's girlfriend Eve, and even find out that actually she does exist. She yes, is real a real person. Yes. Also, I took my I took my partner to to World Suzuki since so she's never been before. And for me, the high point was you suddenly realize when you take someone who's never been to a motorbike race and knows nothing about it, you suddenly realize what an unbelievably flipping, brilliant sport we all work in. Yes. It's so exciting. My our, our big boss came from Discovery as well, Jamie Stewart. He came um, and he's not been to a World Suit Bikes before. So I sort of showed him around a little bit. They were hanging around together. So I showed him around a little bit and you suddenly realize. We work on the coolest sport on the planet yeah, by we do miles. No, it's we so do. cool. So I really yeah, enjoyed do. that side of it. And that doesn't happen very often when you suddenly get a, a chance to sort of take a bit of a check back and have a look. And you suddenly think, oh, my God, this business we work in, we're lucky. Do you know what I mean? It's so cool. It's such a cool sport.
1: The, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I had several examples at the weekend where I met people I haven't seen since well, last year, two years ago, pre-COVID because obviously I worked in BSB for years before I went to, uh, and worked in, in Britain in general for years, and it was amazing, I couldn't get 20 yards without shaking hands or saying hello or whatever to someone, but the funny thing is, you're saying that, the last motorcycle race that my wife went to was I believe, if my memory serves me right Maori Park BSB about 1996 right. She's just, she she's been out in the bike with me, but she's a horse person, I'm an iron horse person, and she's a horse horse person, and never the twain shall meet in that regard, but yeah I couldn't agree with you more about the, it was such a cool we had a few good feel good weekends but I think Donington maybe just because of where we're all from was the high point for me so far Mizano was off scale it was wonderful and I think probably I was an Italian in a previous life because I just loved being there and we've been deprived of it for too long um, and obviously worked with loads of Italians over the years it, but, but Donington was I think just because I knew so many people that I hadn't seen for a while you know, because they don't go to the races, they only go to Donnyton once
0: a year so. Great stuff, we're going to be back in a couple of weeks time for the Paddock Pass Podcast after the check round at most
1: This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler David Emmett, Steve English Neil Morrison and Adam Wheeler It was edited by Brian Burnett Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team
2: at paddockpasspodcast.com
0: So I think we'll probably just do pretty much the exact same show as last time.